As we continue through our 10th chapter in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, this chapter, as I said a few weeks back, begins with a summary of the doctrine of the theological argument that's been made for the majority of this book. It's the theology that is at the heart of this argument of what Christ accomplished, what He did, why we needed it, why He's the only way, and why we must trust in Him. We've come to this part, transitioning into the practical section of the letters we spoke about last week, focus on how we live that theology out, and, and it's, it is practical, it's real. How do we live in light of these truths? The answer is going to be faith. We live by faith. God's people live by faith. God's people have always lived by faith. Obviously, the application here is clear. If you walk away from the faith, you're not doing that. You're not living by faith. So we saw last week a faithful and fitting response or a call for a faithful and fitting response to what God has done for us. We made this clear we're not paying Him back, we're not earning anything, we are simply recognizing the grace that God has showered upon us and we are responding in a faithful and fit way, an appropriate way, a way that makes sense in light of what we've received. We realize the riches uh, with which God has blessed us and so therefore we should live differently. Uh, it is the right thing to do. So the first thing he mentioned <clears throat> is that since God beckons His people to come to Him, He says we should go boldly. Since God has not only called us to come to Him, but has made the way for us to come to Him through what Christ has done, through not only the, the ministry that He did, not only the incarnation and, and, and living in this world, but going to Calvary's cross and not only that, rising from the grave and ascending into heaven and cleansing the way, if you will, that we might come to our Father, then he says you should do it, and you should do it boldly. So that's number one. Second, he instructed us that we are to hold fast our confession. Know what you believe, know why you believe it, and then stand upon it. That's a pretty simple thing that we should be able to do. And third, we are given this third instruction that we are to consider our brothers and sisters in the faith. We are to love them and stir up faith and love in them and in this body, and then also do good works. So those are the things that are fitting. That's the things that God would have us do. You could parse it out into many, many, many more points, but this is a pretty good summary of how we're to live. Live approaching God, live in the face of God, quorum Deo, in the face of God, before the face of God. Live as a people who recognize what we believe and stand upon what we believe. And then thirdly, love one another. It's kind of important. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. When he says a new commandment to Jewish people, he's saying that's on the same level as the Ten Commandments. That you should love one another. And so this author here is simply saying the same thing. Love one another and stir up good works and love amongst one another. Consider one another and consider the importance of being a part of the body of Christ, meaning the gathered church. So he said all this, and it encompasses so many things that we should recognize. We should recognize the love that we have for God, our desire to be in fellowship with God, to be in communion with God, the very thing our most recent Free Grace podcaster is on, and, and it's been incredible. I hope you've been reading it. It also encompasses that we are to love Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who made this communion possible. We should have communion with Him, that God has given us the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. 
right? As many as are sons of God, these have the Spirit of God. So again, the idea is we should have communion with the Holy Spirit. That should be important to us. And that in all of this, we should also have communion with one another. And that we should be doing this in love. All of this is founded upon the love of God by which Christ came into the world, by which He went to Calvary's cross, by which He became obedient to death, yes, even the death of the cross. The same love that was poured out in our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, love is at the heart of all these things. Why? Because Scripture reveals that God Himself is love. He is love. Now these are all very important things for us to understand. So given a summary of how we're to live, and it is a very brief, all-encompassing summary of how we are to live, and the answer is we're to live out the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts, then we need to realize that we come to a warning. We come very quickly to a warning today, and it is a serious warning. It is a fearful warning. It is a warning that has disturbed many people. It's a warning that we have to understand rightly, or we will misunderstand it, and much of the of the difficulty people have with this passage is based on not putting it in the proper context of the argument of the letter to Hebrews and not recognizing who this letter is primarily written to. So we're going to try to deal with that today. But there has been much despair in the church over what we're going to talk about today. Of people saying, I think I'm guilty of this. And that's a problem because it says there is no atonement left for someone who's guilty of this. So how have I committed some unpardonable sin. So we need to understand what's actually being said and put it in the context the author was intending his audience to understand and hear so that we can uh, divide it rightly. All right, so having said all of that, we want to read it again. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31, where he's just given us these very instructions on how we're to live and to be a part of the church And then he says this, for, which means it continues what he's saying. For, here's the reason, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. It is a fearful thing. So my friends, as we look at this, I want to look at two points. The first point is going to be longer than the second point. But the first point is a grave warning. And second of all, a fearsome word. A fearsome word. Let's get right into the text with the Lord's help this morning. So beginning with the idea of a grave warning, as we come to the text today, and as we particularly approach this word of warning, uh, it's important that we understand to divide these things rightly. As I said, the book of Hebrews, uh, it seems to be a conundrum for many people. It's been my prayer, by going through it very slowly and carefully, we would resolve some of those issues. I hope that's been the case. That we would kind of work through it and understand what this author is arguing, 
uh, how we can understand what he means about apostasy in light of the doctrines that we hold, of, say, for instance, the perseverance of the saints. How can God's people be eternally saved but also able to commit apostasy and walk away? We've spoken about this. When he speaks to people who are walking away, he's saying they weren't believers to begin with. That the true believers will show their believers because they will be there at the end. They will persevere to the end. Jesus says, those who persevere to the end shall be saved. It's an evidence. The perseverance of the saint is the evidence that they were truly saved. And the walking away is evidence that they never were. What does John say? They went out from us because they were not of us. That's the evidence that they were not of us. Well, I thought they were Christians. Well, they weren't. They walked away. They walked away from Christ. And so, my friends, we need to to recognize how this author is dealing with this, and we'll see it a little better today. So part of the difficulties people have, I think, with Hebrews is they forget the title of the letter. It's not written to 20th century or 21st century Baptists in Tennessee. It's primarily written to Jewish believers in the first century. That's a different audience. Now, is it also written by extension to us because it's in the Word of God? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit meant for us to have this Word and to read this Word and to understand this Word rightly and to learn from this Word. But it wasn't written to Baptists in our day. Primarily, it was written to Jewish Christians in the first century. And so that helps us to understand why it's written the way it is. The illustrations that are used, the biblical argument coming all the time from the Old Testament. Time and again, we've seen this. The Old Testament is the model given, the illustrations given. Why? Because these people understood the Old Testament better than we do. They grew up in synagogue hearing the Old Testament preached over and over again. They would gone through the ceremonies probably in their lifetime. They knew what Yom Kippur looked like. They knew what Passover looked like. They knew all this better than we do today. So we could point to these things and say, look, I'm not arguing against the revelation of God. I'm showing you through the revelation of God, the Old Testament, that Christ is the end. He was the purpose of all of it. That's what he's been doing. So it's important that we keep that in mind. Because, my friends, as we've seen this, this is what we've been seeing. An Old Testament argument time and time after time that we've been seeing this. And so, again, why is that important to realize when we come to these warning passages? They're framed for Jewish ears. Jewish ears, people who were born ethnically Jewish, who have made a profession of faith in Christ. But their background, everything they've known culturally up until the last couple of years has been Old Testament Israel. And that's why he's made these arguments at length through Yom Kippur. This is something they will understand. And the argument he makes today is no different. It is an Old Testament argument. And if we don't understand that, we're going to be confused and, like I said, maybe even discouraged or in despair. And it's easy to see why. Look at the very first verse of our text. For if we sin willfully, that means intentionally, right? That's the way we would read that in English. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. means if we know that we're sinning and we sin... After we've been saved, or claimed to have been saved, and how the, uh, the argument for Hebrews would have been, whether it be based on a profession or baptism, after a profession, 
whatever the case, he says, if we sin, knowing something's a sin, after that point, there's no sacrifice left to be offered. So what does this do? This makes pretty much everybody say, have I sinned since I became a Christian? Yes. Did I know it was wrong what I did? Yeah, there's been some times. In fact, over the years, many, many times that I did something I knew wasn't right. Does this argue? Because the plain reading seems to me I'm out of hope. Right? There's, no, there's no sacrifice left for me that would avail because of this. You can see this doctrine, by the way, in Catholic dogma, right, where your baptism washes away all previous sin, and then you've got to go through the motions the church orders to continue to absolve future sins. But even that would seem to be in conflict with this. This is the word, right, of the Lord, that there would be no way, no way to have a sacrifice or an atonement for those sins. So you can see why this has been troublesome to people. The early church debated this thing. What does it mean? Some people got it right. Some people said, well, it clearly means what it means. If you sin after you're saved, there's no hope for you. It doesn't seem to fit with everything else that's revealed in the New Testament, and that's because it doesn't. It's not a New Testament argument. It is an Old Testament argument. This language of sinning with intention or willfully or with a high hand is Old Testament language. The author expects these Hebrew listeners to know exactly what he's referring to. The problem is sometimes we don't understand what he's referring to, and we just make assumptions on what we're reading. And so it's important that we come to this. Our author says here in verses 26 and 27, not only if we sin willfully that there is no sacrifice remaining for those sins, but there is what in its place? A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now that's pretty serious and pretty scary, and it should be, except what our author is referring to is the Torah. He's referring to something given to the people of God in the Torah that Moses said on behalf of God. It's in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. And as we look at this, I just want to briefly think about this, but it's important because he's almost quoting it in language that they would have recognized. He says this, it starts in verse 22. And again, the language in the, in the New King James is not the best, but it still will give you the idea of what he's referring to. If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel and it shall be forgiven them for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. And it shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the strangers who dwell among them, because all the people did unintentionally. Now, if we were to, we're going to continue to read a little bit more in a second, but this automatically is going to tell us something. There's a division of sin in this text. If we 
follow it on a few more verses. I want you to hear it when it comes to verse 30. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything, listen to this, presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach upon the Lord and he shall be cut off from amongst his people. Now this language of intentionally sinning, willfully sinning versus, uh, or or non-willfully sinning versus willfully sinning would have immediately been recognizable as something they heard over and over again in the preaching of the Torah. They would have heard this language many times in their life and recognized this is Moses. This is what Moses says in Numbers. This is the distinction between sinning unintentionally and sinning willfully. Now, I would say, having just read that, that isn't a great help to our case because it still puts it in terms of did you sin intentionally, right, or did you sin unintentionally? Did you know what you were doing or did you know, not know what you're doing? Well, one of the things that we need to recognize as we think about this for a moment is that the word here that's speaking of in, uh, unintentionally, Actually, the the Hebrew itself means to go astray, right? It just means that you kind of left the path. You did something that wasn't authorized in the Scriptures. It can be committed in ignorance, in passion of the moment, without thought of consequence, or without a full understanding of God's glory or how sin reflects upon the glory of God. Those things are generally understood to be included in what it means to sin in that sense without intention. So in other words... The way most of us sin, right? None of us, I I pray, none of us sit here and say, you know, I really want to stick it to God. So tomorrow I'm going to do this that I know he hates. Right? That would be a little closer to what he's talking about in verse 30. Because that word to willfully sin or to sin with a high hand, it speaks of sinning intentionally or presumptuously. That is the way some translations use it. Or oftentimes it's translated with a high hand. Well, what does a high hand mean? It's kind of King Jamesy language. It's, it's old to us, but it means to do it in such a way as to be defiant, to put your hand up and say, I'm not listening to you. Oftentimes, people might approach a king defiantly in that way. What would happen to them? They got struck down. They got executed for that. You do not come before majesty, even earthly majesty, with a high hand, right? You should recognize the glory of the one you come before in an earthly sense there as a king, but we come before the true king of glory. We come before God who is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. How dare you come with a high hand in rebellion against God? Now, how does this play out? Well, we'd have to look at certain places because it's pretty clear that the the way that he's interpreting this, the author of Hebrews is interpreting this, He gives to us in verse 28. Look at what he says, because he explains what he means. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. When he says a high hand, he means you know God's revelation. It's not that you, in a moment of weakness or passion or stupidity, violate the law of Moses or violate the will of God. It means you intend to violate the will of God and you don't care. 
Now, I mean here this idea of what's God ever done for me? You know what? I'm going to go out and do whatever I want. I'm going to go out and if it displeases Him, all the better. This is moving more into the territory of sinning with the high hand. This is dangerous territory, friends. Dangerous territory. What happened to you in the Old Testament? Now, it says if there's the, the witness of two or three that you sin with a high hand, you're dismissed from the people of God. You're pushed out. You're exiled from the people of God. But there are ways specifically you could do this, blaspheming against God. Let's say in the middle of the camp of Israel you said, no, I am not going to sacrifice a spotless animal or my best animal. I'm going to purposely choose my worst. That's what I think of God. What would the law of Moses say would be done to you? You'd be stoned to death. You'd be stoned to death. Surely, in the middle of camp, you'd have done this in front of enough witnesses, two or three witnesses, to establish that you'd blasphemed God in such a way. That should be so uncomfortable to us that it's uncomfortable for me to even say these examples. It should be uncomfortable for you to even hear these examples because we recognize God's glory, that He is worthy of praise, not of hatred, not of disrespect. One of the other ways that there would be a person put to death that would, I think, very much been on the mind of this author was found in Leviticus 17, 2-7. This is about idolatry. If there were people who were supposed to be under the covenant that proclaimed that they were under the covenant and they went out and gave glory to another God in place of Yahweh, the one true living God, they were to be put to death. Put to death. These are serious, serious charges and serious consequences for those charges. The author of Hebrews doesn't deny that. He says, if you sin willingly in this way, well, what's he been talking about? He's been talking about walking away from Christ. He's saying, you know all those examples in the Old Testament that you grew up hearing about? About those despicable people in the wilderness who would not give God glory? And they died outside in the wilderness never receiving the promise? Remember those people? Those people you turned your nose up at and thought, how could anyone be so foolish? How could anybody be so hard-hearted as to have seen the wonders of God in all of its glory and then bitterly complained and said, God is not good to us. He has done nothing for us except brought us out in the wilderness so that we can die here. Well, wouldn't it have been better to have died back in Egypt? At least there, we weren't in the middle of a desert. We weren't eating the same food every day. We weren't having to hear Moses and Aaron constantly telling us what to do. Can you imagine the ingratitude there? In fact, our author is saying, you know all of this. You've been taught all this over and over again. It's part of your heritage as the people of Israel. Those who are entrusted with the oracles and revelation of God. All this was part of your heritage. You know every bit of it every way, very well. And you also know other times where people were in idolatry. We can think about example after example. The book of Judges and so forth. And you just say, what in the world? How could a people that had, had every evidence of God, every measure of His grace and love showered upon them, how could they disrespect Him by turning to another God? How could they do it? And this author says, you're not so far from those people. You're not so far from those people. You think you're very far from them. Because you say, well, I'm turning back to God, aren't I? I'm going back to the synagogue. That was God's measure. In that day it was. 
You see, but all of that was meant to point you to Jesus. And now that he's here, it's no more disobedient to go back there than it was for them to go into idolatry. Because in both cases, you're violating the expressed will of God as he's made it known to you. Now that's kind of a hard measure to think about. That it's as sinful for them to go back to Judaism as it was for those in Judaism to go to worshiping Baal. But why is that the case? Because he says those in the days of Moses knew they weren't supposed to worship Baal. God had revealed it to them that his end was for them to worship him under what was given to them in the Torah and the Old Covenant. And now he says, guess what? You have been taught and said you believe that all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the New Covenant. And you're walking away from it to go back to something else even though you've admitted it's not God's will for you to do that. And in doing that, you're rejecting God's revelation and God's only begotten Son. Now to have you notice how he says this, because he says something pretty strongly about what they're doing. He says, understand what this means to leave the church, even to go back to the synagogue, even to go back to what God had once given his people. He says, what it would mean is this. It means that you have trampled the Son of God underfoot. Now we'd say, well, how are they doing that? They're saying they don't need Him. They don't need Jesus. In other words, to put it in kind of modern talk, you're saying Jesus is just another dude, just another guy, just another person. His death is no more significant than anybody else's. I don't need Him. I can go back to the synagogue and I'm perfectly good there without Him. Well, my friends, that is being disobedient to all the revelation of God they claim to have already accepted. What's the second thing he says? He says, not only have you trampled the Son of God underfoot, but you've counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified a common thing. Now, we don't speak this way very often now. You're calling it a common thing. But, but what does he mean? You're saying there's nothing special about it at all. The blood of Jesus Christ, which this author has established, is our only hope of salvation. The precious blood of Jesus, you're saying, is no better, no more needed, no more important than the blood of bulls and goats. How do I know that? Because I can leave the blood of Christ over there and go back to the blood of bulls and goats and be fine before God. And this author says, when you were there, you were looking forward to something. But now that you've received the fullness To go back to the previous is to disrespect what you have now. It's to call it common. Call it not special. And then he says this. He says in addition to that, it would be uh, taking the, uh, the work of the Spirit and making it similarly of nothing. He says it would be insulting the Spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit who transformed you by your claim transformed you by your claim, the same Spirit who pours out the love of God, the same Spirit who convicts us of sin, who sanctifies us, who grows us, who convicts us, who does all these things, you can say, I don't need Him. His ministry is not important. I claim that He convicted me. I claimed He transformed me, but now I deny all those things. Now I can go back to a time before the Spirit did any of those things. Again, He's saying what you're doing is you're blaspheming and diminishing the most important things that have ever been done. 
And he says, if you do that, what hope is there for you? And in fact, the entire framing of what sacrifice remains, or as he puts it, no sacrifice remains, is rooted in this very idea. What remains for you back there when you now say you realize that all the importance of that was in pointing forward to Jesus? You now recognize in the fullness of what Christ has done that those things don't have any weight other than it's pointing forward to Him. Now, we have talked about they had some temporal value in accounting the people righteous uh, uh, ritually to continue to stay in the land and all of that. But he's saying that has passed as well. In Christ, those things have been fulfilled. They don't have a place. So now you're returning back to a system that has sacrifices that cannot avail you anything. Anything. That is what our author means when he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. They were still going on in his day, by the way. The temple had not yet uh, been destroyed. But he's saying, go to Jerusalem, offer the sacrifices. They'll do nothing. The one true sacrifice has come. And all of that has been uh, put to an end. And you can read that in Hebrews. You can read that in 2 Corinthians. That Paul makes this point very well. Uh, that with the coming of Christ, there was a fulfillment of all those things. And so again, uh, as we think about this, we see the stark language that he's putting it in. There is a serious warning here. There is a serious warning here. Because what he says is, if you do this, if you walk away, not only are you putting yourself in a position where there is no longer a sacrifice, because the only true sacrifice you've walked away from And all the ones you're walking back to have no availing power. But not only that, look at what you do. You make yourself an enemy of God. An enemy of God. Look at that. He says, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. A certain coming judgment if you do this. Because you've denied the only means of reconciliation to the Father. Moses was not a means of reconciliation to the Father. Jesus has always been the means of reconciliation for the Father. Our author is going to argue this. It's by faith that everyone has been saved. We're going to see that in chapter 11 next year. But he's making this point. It's by faith and faith alone that all these things have worked. The just, he says, shall live by faith. Quoting from Habakkuk. We'll see that next week. But there will be a certain expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You show yourself to be an adversary of God. Why? If you're not saved, you're at enmity with God. You're an enemy of God if you are not saved. And what you'd be showing by walking away is you weren't saved. You were never a regenerate person. You were never saved by the Spirit of God. That you've been amongst the people, but not really. In the people, but now going out from the people, showing that you were never of the people. My friends, this is put in the most stark language. It should be fearful, but it shouldn't be fearful for the people it's often fearful for. Right? It's often fearful to Christians who read this and think, oh my goodness, I knew I shouldn't have told a lie to my cousin, but I didn't really want to go to the movies with him, and so I just told him I was busy when I knew I wasn't, and I knew I was lying, and now I guess I'm damned. No, that isn't what the text is saying, and that isn't in keeping with the rest of Scripture. But what it is saying is there is a sin of rebellion so stark, so dishonoring of God, 
a way of walking away from the people that God's judgment will rest upon you because it will show that you are not amongst the people of God and you reject the only means of reconciliation to God. So if there's only one mediator and you reject him, what hope can there be for you? It's a logical question. It demonstrates that you are not a true believer. That's what he's arguing. Now I want to bring this quickly to a close because we've got one more point quickly to look at, but it's very short. As I said, the first was much longer than the second. This brings us to a fearful word, a fearful word. Beginning in those last two verses, you will see it. If you think there's not a judgment for the, even amongst the supposed people of God, what does the Lord say? Well, he quotes in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's quoting from Moses, the song of Moses. Moses was saying this on behalf of God to the people of God, the nation of Israel. He was saying those amongst us that are not truly the people of God will face the judgment of God for the, God, the Lord will judge His people and vengeance belongs to the Lord. So in the same way, if you're connected to the church but not really a Christian and you've rejected all that the church teaches and walked away, my friends, the Lord is speaking to you. Vengeance is His against you. That should be frightening. So my friends, when we understand who it's speaking to, it is a frightening warning. It's just not to you because of some little mistake you made or some way in which you sinned. This is clearly talking about walking away. I said a moment ago, he makes it clear in the parallel example that he gives from the Old Testament. Anyone who rejects Moses' law. Well, what's the equivalent of that? Anyone who rejects the new covenant in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Are you rejecting what Christ has accomplished? If so, my friends, he says this, there will be vengeance, there will be judgment, and it will be worse. To whom much is given, much is expected. What excuse will you have? Think about me. If I walk away from the faith now, what am I going to say to the Lord on Judgment Day? It's like, oh, you've been reading the Bible daily for 25 years at least, right? You've been a preacher for maybe 13 years, I think, in October. Preached almost every part of the Bible or taught it in Sunday school or somewhere or another. I've preached almost everything in the Bible. I have an undergraduate degree and a master's degree. What am I going to argue that I didn't know? If I suddenly become a Buddhist, what answer will there be for me? Other than I heard the truth, knew the truth, rejected the truth, rebelled against God. My friends, it's serious. It's serious. And so again, it's a warning given, I think, I've said this many times, this author intends it to the people of God. He believes that they're Christians. He calls them brothers over and over. It's a fearful warning. Why? To get them shaken, get them stirred, and get them back on the right path. God uses means to His ends, doesn't He? And this is His means to get Christians to understand the seriousness of these things. And that brings us to that final verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. It's a fearful thing to fall into His hands. The idea of falling under His judgment, right? That you fall into His hands. Language we use, oh, He fell into the enemy's hands, right? That's the idea that you got captured. The idea that you fall into the judgment of God is what He's talking about here. And it is a fearful thing. If you are not in Christ, it is a fearful thing. All those not in Christ will face this one day. 
What is our motive for evangelism? It ought to be this. That there are people that need to hear the gospel while there's yet time. There are people to be saved. Preach the gospel recognizing this. That there will be a day where sinners will stand before God in judgment. My friends, it's a little different for us. I'd say greatly different for us. You can think about it in an example in the scriptures. An important difference. You may remember that David took a census, <clears throat> debated on why he thought he was doing that. We won't get into all that. It's not our purpose today. But he took a census, realized he had sinned, and God sends a man to tell him that he's got three options. And they basically involve a plague, and they involve uh, all these various things. He can go and be chased by an enemy, all these things. And David answers, not really A, B, or C. David said, let me be in the hands of the Lord, for he is merciful. See, the very same thing in a sense that's being said here, but a totally different context for David. To fall into the hands of the living God for an enemy of God is judgment and destruction and wrath and all of those things. It's terrifying. It should be terrifying. But here's the thing. To fall into the hands of the living God for a Christian is joy and peace and trusting that His ends are best. His ends are best. And at the end, He'll take care of us. So David says, I know I've done wrong. I know I have sinned greatly. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to put myself in the hands of the Lord. Let Him decide how best to deal with this. Because praise God, the Lord is merciful. Amen. See that break right there? If you're outside of Christ... Judgment without mercy, if you are in Christ, in the hands of a merciful God. My friends, this is a stark passage and a stark warning, but we need to understand it rightly. And we need to realize that what it's telling us is, don't be an apostate. <laughs> it's pretty much simple, isn't it? Don't be an apostate. Don't be someone who's been near the revelation, claimed to have believed the revelation, and then walked away despising the revelation. Do not be that person, for their end is destruction.